Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on a rainy autumn day here in the capital is Ijaz Hussain. Ijaz is Director and Registered Manager at iCare Solutions Burnley Limited, an adult social care agency regulated by the Care Quality Commission, which offers domiciliary care packages to vulnerable adults. Um, Ijaz, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Good afternoon, Scott. I'm very pleased to be on, on the show. Pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Ejaz. Now, um, normally at this point in the programme, we dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle. Because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself in the care sector, frontline industry, of course, just to what extent has this affected things? And this is a very challenging time at the moment for all the care industry at the moment since March lockdown. Uh, from our point of view, I would say that we have been very busy uh, to provide care in the community and at the care homes. Um, fortunately, um, the demand for the care has been increased. The number of people who need care at the moment for the last six months. So in a sense, actually, that uh, our staff has been very, very busy in pandemic with a challenging environment, but also they're very, very helpful to the service users and all and the vulnerable people in the community. And with regards to how it's been managing things from a mental health perspective within the care homes that you run, how has that been? Because we've heard a lot of stories about care staff having to, of course, live in the premises essentially to avoid going home, risking transmitting COVID-19 within their sort of care um, areas. So how has it been from that perspective managing those sorts of things? It has been challenging. I must admit that, of course, and the mental health is a big issue at the moment in the country, in the care industry, actually, that uh, we are all managing very well. Um, The the care workers, obviously, they, they, are, they are frontline key workers. They are doing an excellent job. And particularly, uh, we are providing them a lot of support in, in terms of mental health uh, in the last six months. Uh, however, I must admit that um, the, uh, the, all the team uh, within the ITS solution, Burnley here, mm. are an excellent team. And... They are managing as a team, and I think the big message is really to address the mental health is working together. And during the course of the uh, the pandemic, what we have also seen as well is some underlying inequalities within society being laid bare. And as somebody yourself who spent a period of time as an advisor to the government's apprenticeship ambassador, and you helped, of course, promote apprenticeship and trainee programmes to ethnic minority businesses and those hard-to-reach youngsters from those backgrounds, I can imagine that that's something you certainly feel quite passionate about. I am, I'm, of course, I, I, I was involved in, um, in this one, in this process for a long time. I'm still very passionate about this, that the, particularly in the COVID-19 situation, I think that uh, uh, the 
a lot of communities from disadvantaged backgrounds, particularly the ethnic minority communities, are uh, basically at the risk of COVID-19. Mm. And the government, I think that they are not engaging with them at, at the moment, and particularly the young people are at risk. We are at forefront at the moment, with my experience of 30 years, uh, leading from the front to actually address this uh, gap here. I have actually sent a number of emails to concerned authorities, actually concerned people, uh, offering my services with my 30 years background uh, to uh, basically address this gap, particularly the ethnic minority community. Uh, you can say that there's a lot of correlation between the COVID-19 increase and the, and the BME community in the country. Mm. And I'm concerned until we actually uh, look at this gap, uh, it, it will get worse rather than better. It is something that certainly does have to be addressed, and I think we will learn an awful lot from the um, the pandemic's impact and the demographics of um, who is most at risk of this. Um, now, just shifting focus ever so slightly away from that, um, as a leader within your sector, of course, you are quite successful um, in your own right, Ermi Jazz. Um, your contribution to education and training was rightfully picked up on by Fusion Awards in 2014, with you being named Man of the Year. But I wanted to sort of ask you, just shifting focus, as I said, what sort of influences um, were sort of behind that success? Is there anybody that you've sort of looked up to and sort of based your leadership style on as you develop through your career? Or are your influences a bit different than that? I think because I live in Burnley here and uh, Burnley is, uh, and Lancashire uh, is at at, uh, bottom of my heart, actually, really. And I, because I live in the disadvantaged communities here, and I think that was my motivation to help people from the uh, the background uh, of just disadvantaged background. And I think that that was the passion which obviously drove me uh, to understand the um, the real issues within the communities and particularly young people, because I've been involved helping them uh, for a long, long time in terms of apprenticeship, in terms of qualification, in terms of their jobs. And I think the passion was again because I I am one of them so obviously I think that that was the passion certainly see where you're coming from from uh, that point of view and just looking at what the COVID-19 situation um, has done to the sort of economic landscape and what it's doing to a lot of young people's employment prospects there are so many youngsters that may well be listening to this podcast today who are maybe a little bit downhearted by what is happening at the moment but in recognition of the fact that there are going to be opportunities out there as a result of this, would you, as a business leader, have a message of encouragement for those young people to really get them to pick their heads up, look for opportunities and start on that road to success? I, I'm always very positive on this one. I think that young people are asset for the whole country. And I think my, message, my positive message to them is really that though we are going through a pandemic um, process here, but I think that the young people can play a pivotal role here, and that's where I would say that uh, the government, the local authority, actually need to they need to engage them into this process, and they can be a best ambassador to actually promote their cause at the moment, which obviously government is trying to actually create awareness. And I am there to help, but at the same time, uh, young people don't need to be disappointed because there's a lot of opportunity there in the industry actually. And people like myself that can help them in the care industry, also an apprenticeship at the government at the moment are 
promoting apprenticeship is a big thing. But at the same time, I think that we need to help young people mm. in both mental health capacity and also their skills. We do exactly right. And the government certainly does need to take a, uh, a lead on that. Now, um, over the course of the uh, the last few months, while COVID-19 has been quite a dark and dense cloud over all of us and a very difficult and sensitive time for so many people, we are on the programme EJAS trying to find some silver lining in what has been that dark and dense cloud. So over the last few months, if you reflect on that, is there anything you could say that you can take from this as a positive? Yeah, there's a lot of positive. Actually. I think that um, from our experience here is that we have engaged the, the communities actually through uh, the social media. We have been talking to them. We have been actually meeting them actually with social distance in mind. And I think that the communities are getting together. I think the positive thing is really is that uh, the NHS workers and the care workers are basically uh, providing a frontline role here. And I think the the communities are benefiting from there. And I think the message for, for uh, message, the positive message is really is that though we, we are we are going through a very difficult time at the moment, a challenging time. But we, as a as a community, one community in in UK, we can we can actually get together and work together actually to address this. Because the thing is, at the end of the day, I am very positive that this we will get through through this in the next six months or so with the help of everything NHS, government, and the local communities. But they need to work together. That's the positive message. They say, don't they, that you learn more during times of adversity than when things are going well. And certainly it seems to be the case that you've learned quite a lot from the uh, the last few months and you're really sort of harnessing the positives of that and taking that forward. And it's good, isn't it? Because we do need to escape the doom and gloom a little bit and try and obviously focus on the challenges of the future. That's right, of course, because I said that uh, the main thing is really is that we need to provide the frontline support and encouragement to the community, the young people and the businesses. And we need to continue communication with accurate information about COVID-19 because there is a disillusion within the communities about the COVID-19. And also we need to support NHS and also other agencies. But at the same time, I think government needs to play a positive role, which they are, but obviously they need to engage with the community. That's my message to the government, that they need to engage with the communities and they need to engage with the young people, actually, who are the asset for to promote this the positive message to their uh, their young groups. Mm, they do exactly. And um, thinking about um, the changes that you want to see implemented in that sense over the course of the next uh, twelve months, Ejaz, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the program uh, today, um, what would you like to see happen from your point of view over the next year from the government in making that possible? And indeed, where would you like Eye Care Solutions Burnley to be this time in a year as well, in light of all the challenges that we do have to get over, particularly a tricky winter ahead? I think, first of all, I would say that uh, as a country, we need to work together. But secondly, obviously, the next 12 months, uh, our NHS and the local authorities and the communities, they need to work together. That I can see that. that, that that's one thing which I would see. The other thing is that also the community engagement, which I'm actually reiterating again, is very important. The next 12 months, if we could engage with the community and young people, I think we can actually... Uh, we can address this COVID-19 challenge positively. Also, from the eye care point of view, uh, I, I see that because my staff team is very motivated, they're, they're doing an excellent job in the community at the moment, I can see that they will actually 
uh, enhance their skills. Also, they can actually provide more care, uh, you know, excellent care in the community because the, and help the vulnerable people. Because I can see in 12 months' time, uh, the eye care will actually grow. And I think that the staff will get more skills because even though we are going through a difficult time, but all the staff are actually at the moment, they are learning new skills. They are certainly and young people are going to be so pivotal to the future of this country and there are going to be so many of them that are out there in need of skills and in need of employment during this time and there'll be so many opportunities for them to exactly do just that, move into new industries and it's going to be about harnessing that entrepreneurial spirit that we have over the year, the next few months and really being able to excel during this economic recovery and I think that as we start to get an idea of what form of that economy the, the economic recovery is starting to were to take e-jazz i think it would be great to actually catch up and welcome you back onto our program at some point just to discuss how things are coming along and whether we're any closer to actually seeing that vision borne out that you have for our future i think i'll be very pleased to come back again in the next 12 months because i want to contribute positively actually in the particularly in the economy of this country which is a beautiful country for for all of us and giving providing an opportunity for everybody. But we need to work together actually in this challenge for the next 12 months or six months. We certainly do. You're absolutely right. Um, It's going to take a lot of leadership to uh, make that possible. And at the moment, that is what we're all about, of course, making sure that the authentic voices of British industry, those voices of unison are out there in the national sphere and we can all come together and learn from each other. We've seen collaboration indeed on an unprecedented scale over the, uh, the last few months as businesses have adapted and innovated and shared intellectual property. And that is something that hopefully we can continue to see over the course of the year, the next few months and years. Um, Ejaz, I have to say, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us today. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get an opportunity to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on. Thanks very much, Scott, actually, to uh, giving me this opportunity to actually talk about my experience and also giving some positive message to everybody. Exactly right. That positivity is infectious and we could all use a dose of that um, sort of morale boosting positive outlook at this point in time. It's so, so important. And for all of those people that are tuning into the podcast today, please do try and stay positive, stay well, look after yourselves and be considerate of others too, because it does make such a difference in saving lives during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Ejaz Hussain, Director and Registered Manager at iCare Solutions Burnley onto the programme today. Next up on the show, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That will be coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm-hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can 
uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. 
and they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, 
a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? 
But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future 
in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.